Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Hi there! Hey folks, as you may know, Stay Tuned has been on tour this fall. Today we're bringing you a special episode of highlights from my conversations with former Colorado governor and current candidate for Senate, John Hickenlooper, Shannon Watts, who's the founder of Moms Demand Action, a grassroots movement challenging the gun lobby's hold on Congress, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, who recently caught President Trump's ire on Twitter, former U.S. Attorney in Detroit, Barb McQuaid, and Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Yesterday, Sally Yates, former Deputy Attorney General of the United States, joined me for a live show in Atlanta. We'll bring you that full conversation next week. Everywhere we went, Denver, Minneapolis, Detroit, and Atlanta, hundreds and hundreds of people came out to show that they are hopeful for the country, that they want to become active, they want to learn more, and they care about the United States of America. And that gives me a lot of hope. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. So let's begin with the first stop on our tour, Denver, Colorado, where I spoke with recent presidential candidate and now candidate for the Senate, John Hickenlooper. He's been involved in Colorado politics for decades now, having served as mayor of Denver and then the governor of Colorado. When I arrived in Denver, I asked a lot of folks what they thought of him. I was surprised to learn that most people found him quirky. That's an do interesting you, do you, word. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you embrace that? What are they talking about? I think everybody has their own definition of quirky. Okay. Um, not all of them beneficial. <laughs> uh, I think what they're talking about is that I've never tried to conform my personality or my sense of humor to the expectations of what a politician should be. Right? In other words, I wanted to, to, I mean, one of the reasons I ran for mayor uh, was I, I felt that I wanted, lo- I wanted to show people that government could work and that you could bring a team together. And, and I understand how different government is than, than business. I understand that more watching our president yeah. uh, than I thought I ever could imagine. But that ability to solve problems and, and deal and, and, and help people in meaningful ways uh, you know, people think that that means you've got to have a certain amount of seriousness and, and, you know, always take everything you do so seriously. And the, the problems we face, you know, chronic homelessness, uh, the cost of health care, 
climate change. These are very, very serious questions and very serious issues, but you can't always be serious. And I think sometimes when you try to be lighthearted about serious things, the word that pops into people's minds is quirky. So I, you know, I, I was thinking it's even, is it even more than that? Is it that, and I think this is a good thing, that you're comfortable being yourself and you know, not only following what you know, your advisors tell you to do, what the pollsters tell you to do, and if you make a mistake, I'm told, I don't know if this is true, you have made the occasional gaffe. That, <laughs> that what people don't like in politics anymore uh, is that people are all stiff and all sound the same and all sound different. It's not only about humor. It seems also to be about, given whatever career you had, a business person, an athlete, um, you know, a, a smaller politician in terms of office, but can you actually be elected to something if you're just yourself? What advice do you give to, to politicians on this score? Should they be themselves, or should they try to be uh, the kind of thing that wins elections? And sometimes those things are different, or are they not? You know no, I, mean? I think they're very different, oftentimes. Yeah. And I think, uh, it's funny, you know, my, my dad died when I was a kid. My mother was, was actually widowed twice before she was 40. Uh, and her father helped raise us. And he would often tell us, if we started, you know, complaining or getting down, he'd say, hey, shake it up. This is no dress rehearsal. This is your life. And I think people that want to get into politics have to realize you, don't, you shouldn't sacrifice everything for, to be in, a, in the political life. And you also have to recognize that, because we all do try to be more than what we are, Hickenlooper dropped out of the 2020 race in August after campaigning for about five months. Shortly after that, he announced his candidacy for the Senate seat in Colorado, joining seven other Democrats taking on the Republican incumbent, Cory Gardner. Now, when he was running for president, Hickenlooper had dismissed the idea of running for Senate. It wouldn't bring me any kind of satisfaction or delight. And life's too short. I mean, I'm, a, I'm willing to sacrifice a huge amount of my private life because I, I love what I'm doing and I feel it's really meaningful. Being a senator would be meaningful, but I'd hate it. So it's a no. You're, you wouldn't consider it. Uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. That clip's going to be used against you right there. Yeah, I know. So I asked him, what changed? So I'm going to ask you a question that shouldn't be hard for you, because I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but during, but I have to ask it, <laughs> when you were running for president and people said, why don't you run for senator, you said a bunch of stuff. <laughs> That's probably annoying to you now. One, one of which was, I'm not cut out to be a senator. Now you're running for senator. Could you address that? Sure. And there is a real process that goes, you know, as, as my wife and I began talking about, you know, disengaging. I think, you know, we couldn't, obviously I wasn't getting traction running for president. I kept saying, wait, I'm the person who's actually done what everyone else is talking about. No traction. And, and I was being dilutive rather than being additive. So obviously the, the right decision was to, to get out. And uh, a couple, two, three different people came. One, uh, we had a remarkable attorney general here who was a U.S. senator and then became secretary of the interior, Ken, Ken Salazar. And he came over to my house on a Sunday afternoon before I'd really figured out to pull out. And he just asked that I take the time to really think through what the Senate meant and what the Senate was and what the Senate could be. 
And we spent two and a half hours talking. And I think, you know, to condense what became five weeks, I called up pretty much every governor who had gone on from being governor to become a senator. And, and I said all kinds of things. I said that, the, that Washington seemed a lousy place for people like me that wanted to get things done. And, uh, uh, you know, the Senate was a place where good ideas went to die. And, and, and his... You should stop saying those things. You know, his point... I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> his point was that, that that's what it's become. Yeah. And it's become that way because people that have business experience and understand something about local government and state government for a variety of reasons, reasons are choosing not to go there. And I felt, you know, you can, you can stay in the cheap seats and, and, and criticize the people in the arena, but at a certain point you have to decide whether you're going to go, you know, you're willing to, to go back and try and change it. Did, did, so I work for him so I can ask this question. Did Senator Schumer threaten your family? <laughs> no, you know, Senator Schumer, everybody thinks he did no pressure at all. I mean, I mean, I mean that sincerely. Okay. Absolutely zero pressure. There was no push from there. Uh, there were a couple Coloradans. Uh, Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett described to me what it was like being in the Senate and that, the, you know, someone like myself, I could take these <laughs> skills and experience of, of small business and of mayor and, and governor, uh, those jobs, and, and actually put together a great team and accomplish huge amounts of things, much more than I thought. It was the translation of that, it, it doesn't suck as bad as you think? Yeah. No, no, he was, Michael Bennett, I mean, he'll complain like anyone else. Uh, part of it is, you know, he was my original chief of staff, and I think he's secretly dying to have me be the junior The junior senator, senator right? Yeah. Was, Which I, I accept. Was, <laughs> I'm happy to be his junior senator. I was thinking about that. But, but I think that, that, that one of the people that called me up was Tim Worth, uh, who'd been a senator for six years from Colorado, super smart person, one of, has given me some of the best advice in my life. And I called him because he'd written a scathing indictment of the Senate when he decided not to run for re-election in, in 1992. And he could, I, would, I could not have been more surprised. He said, you, you know, what are you sitting around thinking and, and kind of pondering whether you should run the Senate? This is not a political obligation, it's a moral obligation, right? You have the opportunity there. Six other people running, there were actually ten other people running, but who were all pretty much in the same place and they were beginning to beat each other up. He said, you have run statewide in this state. People know who you are. They, they recognize you can bring people together and get things done. And you need to, to take very seriously and look at going out and winning this seat and making sure that Mitch McConnell does not get uh, even two more years in the majority seat. Those, those are some better talking points, <laughs> sir. Not only that, I, I will tell you, I am more excited about running for Senate than I ever was when I ran for mayor or, or when I ran for governor. Once you've immersed yourself in it, the opportunities there are truly profound. So far, the race for the Colorado Senate seat is a toss-up. According to a recent election forecast by Politico, Cory Gardner is the, quote, most vulnerable Senate incumbent and faces headwinds at the top of the ticket in a blue-leaning state, end quote. I asked Hickenlooper about Colorado's political makeup. What kind of state, I've been to Colorado a few times, but not as often as I would like to, to have been here. Is it a red state, a blue state, a purple state? Where, where is the future of Colorado nationally? 
I'd say vermilion. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Colorado is a very independent state, and I don't think we should kid ourselves that we're still a purple state, but we are very independent-minded. And I think one of the issues with, with Cory Gardner, who I'm, uh, I'm going to be running against, is that he has not acted in an independent way, and he's sort, supported uh, the president in, in all manner of, I mean, the, the lawsuit to, uh, to decapitate the Affordable Care Act, I mean, in Colorado, there's 762,000 people that have pre-existing medical conditions that would be at risk if that lawsuit succeeded. They, you just go down the list, he's a, he'll be the first U.S. Senator from Colorado since they created the Wilderness Act 56 years ago. He hasn't sponsored any legislation to expand wilderness. I mean, that's, so how, that's how, on Coloradan. How did he get elected? He got elected in a, in, a, in a very tough year by an eyelash. And I certainly believe in my heart. Happens nationally, too, sometimes. <laughs> Sadly, it does. And I think we all have to bear some responsibility for that. Uh, I do think that the, the things that, that Cory Gardner has failed to do, and he, he doesn't do town hall meetings, he doesn't get out and, and does talk he, Does to he people. do podcasts? Uh, no, he doesn't do any podcasts, okay. and certainly not where people would suspect his <laughs> motives of running for Senate. <laughs> um, just kidding, just kidding. No, you don't kid, it's okay. <laughs> I do kid. My, my staff will, will commonly say there's never more than five feet between me and disaster. <laughs> One question I wanted to get Hickenlooper's take on was the future of political moderates. People like another guest of the Stay Tuned podcast is fellow Colorado politician, Senator Bennett, who remains in the presidential race. Bennett, by the way, once served as Hickenlooper's chief of staff when Hickenlooper was the mayor. I've had a lot of guests on the podcast, including your former employee, Michael Bennett. <laughs> and this issue... This, you can... Is Michael Bennett not a great senator? He is. And wouldn't he be a great president? This issue of what it means to succeed as this terrible word that people, a moderate or a centrist or a pragmatist, uh, and I think you would adopt some of those words, Michael Bennett does, I, I do. What is, the, what is the future for someone right now, not just nationally, but in a primary in the Democratic Party? Like, what does it mean to be, I think you've described yourself as an extreme moderate, and I think you say a lot of smart things, Michael Bennett does, and a lot of other folks, they don't seem to make a lot of headway in, in politics nationally. Can you just talk about that? Well, I think that there is such frustration with the, that many people feel, both on, across the political spectrum, uh, you know, Gallup has some polls that shows this is the largest percentage of the American public in history that, that believe in 10 years they'll be worse off than they are today. Extreme anxiety, you see a, a, a national epidemic of depression. Uh, I think that makes people want their ideal, their ideal outcomes and, and makes them less willing to, you know, compromise has become a bad word, and it should never be a bad word. That's how... The world makes progress and functions. Uh, people rarely exactly agree on what their final outcome should be. You know, any legal negotiation is the same. And I think that 
you know, ultimately, uh, you know, when I was young, I marched on Washington. I would, I guess I would be as extreme as many of the young people today. Uh, I, I think we need idealists and, and people that have that, that real drive to, to get to an ideal vision. Uh, but we also need to be pragmatic, and, and that is what makes, I think, great cities and great states and great countries, is people recognizing that we may differ, and it can be differ, different based on how you grew up or where you are in life, but unity is what creates greatness. And I think the Democratic Party, and I do believe this, I think that we will come together after this, uh, this long, hard uh, primary, and we will unite around whoever we choose, and we will make sure that we don't just beat Donald Trump, that we, that we beat him thoroughly. After my conversation with Governor Hickenlooper, Shannon Watts joined me on stage to explain how she organized a national grassroots movement for sensible gun reforms. So I started Moms Demand Action uh, the day after the Sandy Hook tragedy in December of 2012. I was a stay-at-home mom of five after a career in corporate communications, and that day I went from being devastated and sad to being angry that pundits and politicians were saying on my television that the solution to the crisis was more guns, that somehow 400 million guns in the hands of civilians wasn't enough. So I went online and I looked for something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving to join and couldn't find anything. So I started my own Facebook page and what I thought would be an online conversation has turned into the largest grassroots movement in the country. So what, so what is it uh, about the power of moms? What's different about moms? Why is that the driving force? And how does that make a difference? How do you, how do you describe that power? Well, first of all, when you look at the gun lobby, uh, what they have been so successful at doing over the last several decades is making a very vocal minority of gun extremists afraid erroneously that their guns will be taken away. And as a mom, as one of 80 million moms in America, regardless of political party, we are afraid that our children will be taken away. And that is the emotion that I believe will win this fight in the end. But the other piece of it is, you know, women only hold about 17% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. So we only have really two major levers of power we can pull. One is our vote, we're the majority of the voting electorate, and two is our spending power. We've had enormous success of putting pressure on companies, not only to change their policies, but to join the coalition. And so those are the levers of power we've been pulling now for seven years. What is it like and how do you prepare for and what do you say in these discussions you have with people who have just lost a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or an uncle or a teacher to a mass shooting? How do you, how do, you do that? Every single situation is unique. Every conversation is different. They are all heartbreaking. This is such a senseless, preventable crisis in this country that is tearing apart families and communities. You know, I wake up and do this work every day as a full-time volunteer, and some people say that they're appreciative of that because I've never been impacted by gun violence, and yet I want to solve it. To me, what's heroic is someone who has been impacted by gun violence and can still wake up 
and do this work every day to save the lives of perfect strangers. And I can remember one mom called me uh, whose daughter was shot and killed at Sandy Hook just two months after the shooting tragedy. Uh, We've become close friends, and she has become an advocate. But just the pain and the suffering that these families go through is so profound and so heartbreaking. And there's a sadness, but there's also an anger because I am so angry that our lawmakers are sitting on their hands when we know that there are solutions to this crisis. So when you sit in a room or in a kitchen or somewhere, do you channel sympathy? Do you channel anger? What is it that you say? It's often a conversation about their loved one. Survivors want us to remember the person that they lost, and they want us to fight in their honor, And so I save my anger for the battlefield. (laughs) You know, that's when my anger comes out. But in those moments, it really is about sympathy and compassion and listening. One thing I talked to Shannon about was the escalating level of fear that both parents and kids have in America today because of all the mass shootings. And I shared one of my own personal experiences. What do you make of the psychic pain that lots and lots of people in the country feel who have never been the victim of a shooting? I'll give you one tiny example from my own life. Everyone has many examples of this, worst examples of this. I took my 14-year-old in the last few weeks to go see a movie. It was Joker, so you can, you know, question my fitness as a parent taking my son to see that film. But he wanted to see it. And 20 minutes into the movie, and people have talked about the violence in the movie, 20 minutes into the movie, the film stopped, and sirens went off, and the lights started flashing, and they made us evacuate the theater. And I'd read about this, but I'd never experienced it. And the first thing I thought was, there's a shooter in the theater, because people had talked about the film. And the next thing I thought was, I need to hold my son's hand, and what bad thing is gonna await us on the other side of the door? And I got more upset than I can recall. And it turned out someone had just pulled a fire alarm, so it it was a false alarm. But the fact that Millions of people now, when a routine alarm goes off, myself included, have that reaction. How do you, how do you deal with that? I don't even have a question. <laughs> I'm, just ma- I'm making a statement. It's an awful feeling, and everyone now feels it. We are a nation of traumatized individuals. Uh, we have a gun violence crisis that makes us feel like we're not safe no matter where we are. And you bring up an important point about safety in places where we should feel safest. And one of those places is school. You know, we recently came out with a position on lockdown drills. We're a very data-driven, research-based organization, nonpartisan. Many of us are gun owners. So we are very moderate on when we take positions on something. So we'd watched these lockdown drills occur across the country. We'd seen legislators try to pass laws that allow teachers to be shot with rubber bullets, students who are laying in hallways with fake blood on them, strangers hired to rattle the doors without letting faculty or students know. And then we looked at the data, and what it showed was these drills cause trauma. They cause anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, worse performance in school, And also, on the flip side, data shows that people who go through these drills aren't any more prepared than people who haven't been through them. So we took a position recently that we don't think kids should go through lockdown drills. (laughs) 
What's been the reaction to that? I, I don't do a single speech or a single event in this country without a mother beginning to cry. And it's not because she's a gun violence survivor. It's because she has sent her five-year-old to school for the first time, and that child has had to pretend to die in the bathroom of their school, as though that piece of wood is going to protect them from the fire of a semi-automatic rifle. We don't have to live this way, and our children sure as hell should not die this way. Moms Demand Action has fought the NRA's grip on Congress and pressured companies to ban people from openly carrying guns in states that allow it. In terms of the NRA, you know, we have always said from the very beginning that our job as an organization is to shine a flashlight under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. And by that, I mean the leadership at the NRA. Uh, <laughs> their agenda is so incredibly dangerous and obscene. And we knew from the very beginning that uh, they were not honest brokers. And now, here we are seven years later, they are under investigation on several fronts, whether it's their ties to Russia or where their dark money is coming from, uh, the, their self-dealing and the fact that they're misspending members' money. And their agenda is toxic. Uh, we outspent them in the 2018 midterm elections because they're reputationally broke and they're financially broke. And but we also it, outmaneuvered is that, them. Is that the thing that matters? Is it about the money or is it about something else? It is about the money. It really is, because the fact that we were able to flip seven state legislatures to be gun sense majorities was in part because we could outspend them, but also we have this grassroots army of badass women that <laughs> is going up against them in every single state and knocking doors and making calls, and they're relentless. And, and that's really how you beat a special interest. But you know, the part about Wayne LaPierre, um, you know, the cheese stands alone at this point. Everybody has been <laughs> fired at the NRA except uh, Wayne LaPierre. And not only is he spending tens of thousands of dollars on Italian suits, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on private jet travel, they tried to buy him a $6 million safe home on a golf course in Dallas. Uh, this is not normal behavior for a tax-exempt nonprofit organization. Can we talk about some of the tools and proposals that are on the table. What is the usefulness of rallies and marches? And they're good and they get people interested. You know, but you have said action is more important than rallies. What do you, what do you mean by that? When we started the organization, we started rallying and having marches, and those were fine and good, and they bring attention. Obviously, the March for Our Lives was very important, and Moms to Men Action volunteers helped replicate those all over the state, all over the country. But we had to organize, just like the NRA was organized, state by state, and show up, dozens or hundreds of us, in our red shirts, and go eyeball to eyeball with lawmakers, and look at them and say, not in my community, you won't. Not in my state, you won't pass this law. And that is what it takes. It takes strength in numbers, it takes boots on the ground, and that's how you beat back a special interest. The thing that I have been, I'm impressed by so many things that you and your organization have done, but there was a period of time a few months ago, and I don't have a list and I didn't keep track, when after some particular mass shootings, you guys pressed for various uh, stores and companies and shops to ban open carry, which is a frightening thing for a lot of folks, right? Where you have somebody, you don't know if they're going to be a mass shooter or they're just exercising their Second Amendment right. 
and you got company after company in a short period of time to change their policy about whether or not you could just carry you know, a weapon in the store. How did that happen? And, and how widely was that, how wide was, was the success of that? So we have been working to get companies to stop allowing open carry all the way back to 2013 when we started with Starbucks. It only took three months of making images of what open carry looks like go viral, and we see it all the time here in Colorado, uh, where people carry semi-automatic rifles to go to a restaurant or a retail outlet. Um, and, and, that and sometimes they're doing it to, to intimidate. Yes, absolutely. Right. It is a form of intimidation. It, is, it should not be culturally acceptable. And often we have rallies and marches and we're surrounded by men open carrying. But, but what changed during that period this year that caused so many businesses to say enough? Well, it started with Starbucks. And that's when we started putting pressure on other companies too. And some of them stayed firm and kept allowing open carry. And really... After the El Paso shooting, when a man showed up in tactical gear with a semi-automatic rifle, um, that decision by Walmart to change their policy broke the dam. And we had been having conversations with Walmart asking them to change their policy. And so then we started putting pressure back on all those companies that hadn't changed their position in the early days. And company after company, now 40 store brands have changed their policy since El Paso. It was every three hours. Every three hours, I <laughs> would say. Another, breaking. It was another company. Breaking. But when you say put pressure, when you say put pressure, like explain what that means. Yeah. Like, did you write a letter? Do you give a speech? Oh, no. Do you it's tweet? It's all Twitter. It's all Twitter. Yeah. Talk about the power of Twitter, because Twitter kind of is terrible. Yes. But it can be good, too. Yeah. I always talk about how there's these gatekeepers that keep middle-aged ladies like me uh, <laughs> from, from telling their stories. And so Twitter is a really great way to bypass those gatekeepers and to tell the stories of our volunteers that wouldn't get any attention otherwise. But it's also such a great way to put pressure on legislators and on companies. And using the hashtag groceriesnotguns, we were able to make noise and get all of our volunteers to sort of gang up on these brands. Is there an end in sight to the battle that Moms Demand Action is waging? When do you feel that there will have been enough accomplished that you can retire from this work? <laughs> because we, we want to be able to retire from this work, yes. right? It shouldn't be the thing that we spend the next hundred years working on, right? How much progress before you think you can do something else? I, I truly believe that, you know, I could walk out of the Newman Center tonight and get hit by a bus, God forbid, and, and Moms Demand Action would continue into perpetuity. And that makes me feel like I've done what I came here to do. And I think that there will be gains made and wins made, but we will have to protect them on and on, and this won't be the only generation that has to do it. It's why we now also have students demand action. But I want to be clear, that this is not just about mass shootings and school shootings. It's about 1% of the gun violence in this country. The everyday gun violence that is tearing apart this country are gun homicides in city centers and suicides in rural communities. And we have to make sure that we care about all of it and that we are working to address all of it. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people 
is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Our trip to Denver had a lot to teach us about movements and mobilizing people. So it's only fitting that a couple of weeks later I was talking to someone who was always on the move. Former professional runner and Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, who moved to the Twin Cities after running a marathon there and successfully ran for the city council in 2013 and then mayor in 2017. So the running thing, first of all, it's an amazing metaphor for you. Run for office, run to the finish line. Uh, how serious was running for you? It was my life. Yeah. Uh, I fell in love with distance running at a really early age. It was probably around 10 years old. Uh, and I fell in love with it when I first beat my father in a race. That says a lot about you. And it was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. I was, around, I was around 10, and the signal of victory was being able to pick up the Washington Post. I grew up just outside of D.C. Uh, on our way back in, and you handed it to my mother with like a nasty, sweaty handprint. Uh, and until this time, my, my father had always been the one to pick up the paper, but on this particular instance, I totally kicked his ass. And I fell in love with the sport. And what I loved about it, though, what I loved about it was this direct correlation between hard work and success. If you worked harder than the other people standing next to you on the starting line, you're probably going to win. And it's also what inspires me to be involved in public service, is to see that direct correlation throughout society, a direct correlation that presently we don't have. What's interesting, so I was not a very good athlete. The only thing I did in high school was cross country. Three miles. Three mile competitions in high school. But it's, it's kind of a lonely sport. It's not a team sport. 
What does that say, that you were really interested in doing a sport that was not about teamwork, it was about individual accomplishment? Well, first, I disagree. Uh, Cross-country especially, um, if your fourth or fifth runner on the scoring line is sucking, your whole team is going down. And so there is this inherent dependence on one another to perform. Right. And when you don't, your teammates are going to get right. on. Though you're not interacting way. with them. It's not like baseball or football or something yeah, else. Is, you're hoping different. that they're going to do well in their own individual way so that the overall points are going to be higher. Well, and, and that, I think, was part of the beauty for me, was that I understood that if I got up early every single morning and I trained and I got home in the evening and I trained again, and I ran more and I ran harder than everyone else, I would see a benefit from that hard work. Uh, and that simplicity is such a beautiful thing. Uh, and I think that that is sort of what inspired me to get involved in running. I got a scholarship to college. I eventually ran professionally for a running shoe company and, and, and tried and did run for Team USA. And, you know, thankfully, this is also the reason that I'm in Twin Cities right now. You know, I ran the Twin Cities Marathon. I, I fell in love with the city. Mayor Fry has been making waves in Minneapolis with his plans to tackle affordable housing, improve community police relations, and stimulate economic development. But shortly before my trip, he gained national attention for a Twitter spat with none other than the President of the United States. It turns out that the Trump campaign owes close to $1 million in public safety costs to cities around America. Minneapolis, where Trump held a rally in October, is one of them. And that was the genesis of the presidential Twitter beef. Let's talk about this whole, this whole business with Donald Trump. Um, get that out of the way. What the hell happened? So he was coming. He had a rally. I don't know, man. I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. I've, I'm I've been trying to... I've walked around for like a day, and I'm, I'm trying to find a Trump voter in Minneapolis, and I haven't found one. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed. But so I'm confused. So, but he has this big rally that he sets, and it was full. I think a million people outside, he said. Yeah, right. In the, in the rain. Uh, so where do all these supporters come from, and what's the controversy about? I can't speak to where all of his supporters came from, but they, they do not come from Minneapolis, largely. Uh, what I can say is that we didn't ask for this. This is not something that we anticipated. It's not like we set out to become some internet social media celebrity. Uh, I remember it was announced that Donald Trump was coming to town, right. and our interim city coordinator came into my office, and he said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, uh, recover as much cost as possible. So why did you immediately have that concern? Well, I had seen consistently what had happened in other cities. I had seen Trump heading to these other municipalities, uh, to uh, stadium and, and large centers similar to the Target Center that were even not city-owned, uh, and they're leaving with, you know, a multiple $100,000 bill in some cases. And, you know, it's my job, it's my responsibility as the mayor of Minneapolis to look out for taxpayers. What do you uh, say to people who would, and they have, suggested that for you, given that the president was coming and you're the mayor, recent mayor, young person, not that well-known nationally, that this was more about raising your profile and posturing than it was about fiscal responsibility. How do you respond to those folks? Well, I would, I would instruct them to the, the timeline of how things happened. You know, the city coordinator came into my office. This is not like a publicized conversation. We weren't tweeting out what happened. Literally, all I said was cover as much, recover as much cost as possible. That's all I said. And I actually forgot about it. 
uh, for about five or six days until one day, uh, relatively early in the morning, I was coming back from a run, and I got a call from one of my staff who's standing backstage right now, and he said, uh, the President of the United States is tweeting about you. <laughs> and that is just a bizarre thing to have right. said and to anyone. And he wasn't anyone. tweeting, you know, tune in to Fox and Friends That's right. with Jacob Fry. He called you, among other things, uh, lightweight, radical, and rotten. How would you rank those insults? Like, what's the best and what's the worst of those well, three? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, in terms of lightweight, you know, I'm, I'm at least Bantam at this point. Uh, you know... I, rotten? Rotten, whatever. You know, if it's coming from Donald Trump's mouth, I'll take that as a badge of honor. Uh, it's... Here's the most shocking thing. You know, I represent a city of... 430,000 some odd people. And I wake up every single morning, I work my ass off uh, to, to do uh, basic things and really hard things. Everything from filling potholes to tackling the affordable housing crisis to an opiate epidemic. And I don't have time to be tweeting out garbage about anyone. Now here you have the President of the United States, a gigantic country, with way more constituents than I have, and he's spending the entire day, I don't know, playing golf and tweeting. That's silly. You know, regardless of the ideology, regardless of the policy, this is a job that deserves respect. This is a job that deserves a very high standard of morality. And I can't imagine a leader of a country who I love not going to bat for people, not arguing or advocating for a specific policy agenda, but spending time messing around. Did he call you or did his people call your folks and try to work it out and discuss the best, most efficient, fair way for the city to be compensated? Or was it, was it just this Twitter? It was entirely Twitter, as far as I'm aware. He didn't call me. Uh, so the way it is, is we Lucky have Lucky you. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I would be subject to some sort of impeachment inquiry as well. Um, uh, maybe I would have gotten one of those amazing letters. Um, but you, you, re you responded, uh, and I like this response, to one of the many uh, critical tweets from the president about you. You replied, my, my favorite part of the tweet is the first word, yawn. <laughs> because the one thing the president doesn't like to be described as is, is boring. You write, yawn, welcome to Minneapolis where we pay our bills, we govern with integrity, and we love all of our neighbors. That's right. So he comes here, and how'd it go? <laughs> where to begin? Uh, when it was first announced that Donald Trump was coming to town, I said that his, his hateful rhetoric was not welcome in Minneapolis. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, and these are not ordinary circumstances right now. Had these been organized, ordinary circumstances, had this been Obama or George W. Bush or, or Clinton or H.W. or anyone before them, I, I would have gone to the airport and I would have shaken their hand, even if I didn't agree with them. 
even if we're on the opposite side of things. This is not normal. For the record, the Trump campaign does owe Minneapolis over $500,000 for his rally. We'll see when that gets paid. But this whole incident raised a larger question for me. Increasingly, local leaders across the country are pushing back against divisive rhetoric and challenging federal policies in courts. I asked Mayor Fry how he sees that responsibility. Well, mayors and specifically cities are now charged with taking up issues that they previously didn't need to touch with a pole. Um, De Tocqueville uh, once said that in America, the states are the laboratory of democracy. And now in the age of Trump, cities are the laboratory of democracy. You know, all of these controversial issues, you know, you've got this, they're being taken up by cities. Like, like immigration? Like, all of them. Immigration, the affordable housing, police yeah. community relations, you know, opiate crisis. Go down the list. Every single one of them, cities are having to address because you've got one, this gridlock at federal and sometimes state legislatures. You have people that are moving back to cities at these massive rates. And so cities are charged, yes, with being a laboratory of democracy and, and, and dealing with all of this other crap that the federal government, Donald Trump, is is pushing under the rug. And when you look under the rug, who's under the rug? It's cities. We're the ones that are now faced with dealing with it. And it used to be that the items that they were pushing under the rug a long time ago were like, you know, smaller debris. It was, it was like dust and, and maybe paper clips and pennies. And then in the 90s, you know, the, the, the items got a little bigger. It was uh, forks and uh, scrunchies. It was the 90s. You know? <laughs> uh, and, but now, now they're throwing like lawnmowers under the road, work with me on this analogy. There's here. a lot of metaphors going one. on. Oh. You know, and so, no, and I, I never mowed a rug. Yeah, well, if you, th these are like large items that are now being placed under the rug. And, and, as, and as mayor, you're, you're forced to disassemble uh, this lawnmower and put it back together in a way that is safe, that is environmentally sustainable. And if you could use the extra metal to create a few, full, few units of affordable housing, you do that too. And so it's changed. We are the ones that are doing this. And by the way, it's also the reason that people trust cities more is because we're actually dealing with these issues. When someone calls me um, and says, you know, hey, I got a pothole out in front of my uh, street, I can't lie about it and say we filled it when we didn't. And so because of that, cities are becoming a bastion of truth uh, because we have this traditional arc of problem followed by action followed by solution. Uh, at the federal level, you have the problem and then everybody argues about the problem for a year and a half and it's on every single news channel and everybody argues about the problem. You don't even get to the action, you never get to the solution. What is the role of a mayor of a city responding to immigration crackdowns on the federal level? Like, how, how do you think about the rule of law and how do you think about ICE, and how do, you, how do you think about these issues when the federal government has a view about who, or should, who, or, who should or should not be allowed to do various things, and what your responsibility is to, your, to the citizenry, and you hear these terms like sanctuary city, and on what basis should someone, if they report a crime but they're undocumented, should they re be reported to federal authorities or not? How do you think about that globally? And then I'll ask you a couple of specific questions. The role of mayors throughout the country uh, with respect to immigration has changed dramatically in the last three or four years. Um, I don't know that it was an issue that was consistently tackled previously uh, because there wasn't as much reason to do so. There wasn't the same kind of fear that there is now. Um, 
When you say fear, what, what do you mean by fear? We have, I, we have people, neighbors and friends and family that live in our city. Right. So they're fearful are, because they think there's a crackdown happening. They, they're fearful because they think there's a crackdown happening. They're fear of being ripped apart from their loved ones. Uh, they're fearful of being taken away from a city that they love and they've helped to make wonderful. Uh, and yes, it is a role of a mayor to help to step in. Now, there are legal questions as to how and when you should step in um, to best protect those that we love. Um, now, you know, there's no clear definition out there as to really what constitutes a sanctuary city, at least when Donald Trump says it. Um, now, what we have in our city is a separation ordinance. And what that separation ordinance says is that our police officers, our public officials, are not to ask the question as to whether an individual is documented or not. And that's true, by the yeah. way, in many, many cities that's around right. the country. And you believe in that? I do. And you think that's good? Yeah. And then when the federal government disagrees with you, how do you handle that? When the federal government disagrees with me about handing over information or collecting data? Yes. We don't collect it. We just disagree with them. We're not doing it. Uh, you know, this is... This is <laughs> there are certain things in life and certainly in politics that are negotiable. Uh, we don't negotiate with people's lives. And when you have... And so, you know, the bottom line is that when Donald Trump or the federal government or ICE or whoever comes to us and asks us, you know, who's undocumented, what information do you have, give us all your information, our first response is quite simply, we don't have any. We don't have it, we don't collect it, we don't keep it, uh, because a document or a piece of paper is not how we judge someone's life. What do you think the U.S. responsibility is to welcome and take care of refugees from the rest of the world? I mean, just, you know, check out the Statue of Liberty, and I won't, I won't start reciting the old cliche, but this is, I mean, this is who we are as a people. Um, we've always been a country that has welcomed immigrants. And in the case, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not the president of the United States. I'm not running for anything. I'm the mayor of Minneapolis. And what I can say is that in Minneapolis, we are really freaking proud to have our immigrant and refugee community. We are really proud that we have the largest Somali community in the entire Western Hemisphere. Um, you know, when I, you know, we talk about welcoming immigrants and welcoming refugees. For me, it was like the other way around. You know, I, I came here from you know, Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., Philly, New York, East Coast. And when I moved out here, it was them that was welcoming me. You know, the first community that I really made friends with was our Somali community. And part of it was due to the running background. Uh, but I felt welcomed initially because I had a chance to go for a run and play soccer and, and eat Sambusa and stay up late at the coffee shop debating about philosophy and politics. And that was with our Somali community. And so it's, this is not just like rhetoric about, yeah, you know, all are welcome here. Um, the all being welcome 
in this case, in my story, was me, and I was being welcomed mm -hmm. by our Somali community. How much do you think rhetoric matters versus policy? You know, the president talks a lot about the wall. There actually is no wall. It seems to be a lot of rhetoric. He talks about shithole countries, and other people adopt the rhetoric. But a lot of it is just talk. There have been reductions, to be sure, dramatic reductions in the numbers of refugees who have been taken into the country. But how, how do you think about rhetoric and leadership? And if you were the president or you had a larger voice in the country, how would you be talking about these issues? Well, first off, I think there's a really screwed up incentive around rhetoric right now in our country. Um, you know, as mayor, I get credit here locally when I do good things. When we set up an affordable housing project for people with a felony record, I, I get credit for that. And I, I think I deserve credit for that. Um, when we fill a pothole, um, I get credit, some credit for that anyway. Um, uh, when we do good things, I get credit. However, you know, and you saw this recently, um, I, I spend day after day, hour after hour, working on these really tough issues. I spent like three minutes thinking about a clever tweet to respond to Donald Trump with. It took you three minutes? Well, uh, maybe four. Um, but, <laughs> and, 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 and suddenly people, and you know, the whole, the whole thing lights up. And there is this incentive right now, not to good, do good things, but to, but to be somebody and to say something and to have the best jab out there. Uh, but I think we're getting too far away from the real work. Yeah. And the real work is what public service is about. Yeah. A week after diving into Minneapolis's experiments with bold policy and politics, the Stay Tuned team sprinted to Detroit in the midst of a snowstorm. There I spoke with two women who live by their dedication to the rule of law and fighting for justice. My friend, former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid, and Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. McQuaid joined me on stage first, and we began the conversation on common ground. Like me, President Obama appointed her early in his first term, and she served until 2017. And like me, these days, she teaches and goes on TV to make sense of this unique moment in history. I asked her if she's nostalgic for her old job. Does it ever um, seem weird to you that at one time, because I get this question, you were the prosecutor who oversaw the, the case of the underwear bomber, Abdul Muttalib, and now you go on TV. Do you miss terrorism cases? and protecting the public? Uh, I do. Um, you know, I, I think that the work that you and I both do uh, on, on television is a continuation of our public service, though. Um, I would, you know, I love doing those cases, but at this point in history, I don't think I would want to be at the Department of Justice at this moment. And I think that you and I have some insights and some experience and some credibility to use our voices to call out what we see as uh, not the way we'd like to see things So, done. But that's an interesting question, right? So, so I got asked this a lot. And when I left office after being fired by the president, there were people in my office who thought they should leave because they were upset about it and, you know, the world was changing. And my advice to them was do not leave, stay. Because as I said a minute ago at the other microphone, the vast majority of work that happens in the U.S. government is non-political. It's robbery cases, public corruption cases, homicide cases. 
and you need good people to remain in those positions. But is it your view that at a certain level, you wouldn't be able to, like, in other words, could you be a line prosecutor in this Justice Department? I think I could be a line prosecutor, and I do encourage students to seek out those jobs and to apply for those jobs. I don't know that I would want to be the U.S. attorney under these circumstances. As you might expect, our conversation soon turned to the inevitable, the impeachment of President Trump. Explain to this audience in plain English, not with reference to law or the Constitution necessarily, what is it that the president did that was bad regarding Ukraine? Simply because I don't hear enough of that. So I think he did two things. One is asking for Ukraine to announce that they were investigating the Biden family with relationship to an energy company in Ukraine. And I believe that announcement was wrong because it was inviting foreign influence into our elections. We want American citizens determining the outcome of our elections, not foreign governments influencing the outcome of our elections. Foreign governments act in their own best interest, not in the best interest of the United States. And so we don't want a president to be beholden to a foreign country. So that right there, that's that's important. So in that statement, you're not even talking about extortion or bribery or blackmail or quid pro quo, which I'm glad you said. That alone, before there's any pressure, that alone is bad conduct. Why? Because it uh, invites foreign influence into our election. We want to have our elections to have integrity. We want people to have confidence in the outcome of them. We also don't want to have a president beholden to a foreign government, which would put him in a situation of blackmail. Right. I realized you said that already. I asked a bad question. The second reason why it's bad. The second reason is the withholding of the military aid. That's a second thing that he did that was wrong. Military aid was approved by Congress to help Ukraine against, who is it? Russia. It's always Russia. Withholding that military aid, it had been determined that it was in the best interest of our national security to push back against Russian aggression. They've invaded Ukraine in the Crimean Peninsula. They have claimed to annex it. 13,000 Ukrainians have died as a result of their military aggression. And so we were providing them with military aid to prevent that. When, we, when that was withheld, it, number one, harmed Ukraine. It harmed our national security interests by pushing back against Russian aggression into Europe. It harmed our credibility around the world that we back up our promises and do what we say. It harmed our foreign policy with regard to our position uh, in Europe versus Russia. And it harms our ability to say we oppose corruption around the world when we commit corruption ourselves. So those are two things. And then he did the trifecta by tying them together. I'm going to use this military aid that you're entitled to, that our Congress has approved, $400 million worth, and I'm going to withhold it unless you do that thing I want you to do, announce that there is an investigation into my political rival to help me win the election. So there are three terms that people keep using that have legal meaning to people like you and me. Uh, One is quid pro quo, which is that Latin phrase that a lot of folks uh, on the Democratic side are saying we shouldn't use because it's Latin, it's complicated. It literally just means this for that. I give you this, you give me that. The other terms are extortion and bribery, which are actually 
criminal statutes in the code. Um, this thing that you describe and that we've been talking about with respect to the President of the United States, the President of Ukraine, is that bribery or extortion or both? I think when we think about it in common terms, it, it feels more like extortion. When I think of bribery, I think of uh, slipping somebody some money so that they'll do something for me, they'll do me a favor. Right, so the person paying the thing is the bad person, along with the person taking the money. So in the, in the standard case, and I, I'm assuming you brought cases like this, I brought a lot of cases like this, you have the corrupt politician, the business person comes in and says, Hey, is there something I can give you to make sure that you approve that bill that helps my company? Here's $10,000. That's bribery. Extortion seems more like when the person with the authority, the politician, says to perhaps an unsuspecting business person, oh, I understand that you have this issue and you want this bill to pass. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to give me $10,000. Yeah, I often refer to extortion as bribery's ugly cousin. It's more of a using the muscle, unless you do this thing for me, I'm gonna do something bad to you, is usually the extortion. And right. that feels more like what was happening here. Unless you do this investigation for me, I'm gonna withhold this aid you're entitled to. But, you know, there is, under the bribery statute, section 201 of uh, Title 18. Yeah, you guys got that, 201, section 201. <laughs> and I, I, I tend not to wanna to focus on statutes because I think that uh, impeachment is certainly much broader than the violation of any criminal statute. When you start talking about the technical elements of a statute, I think it risks confusion for the public about what is impeachable. But if you look at that statute, there are a number of different ways you can violate it. And one of them is for a public official to demand a thing of value in exchange for the performance of an official right. act. So I think if you frame it that way, it does fit. And that may be why Adam Schiff is trying to frame it as bribery. Well, it's weird to me about this reference to bribery in the Constitution and what the Founding Fathers must have been concerned about is it, and I haven't researched this, so this is off the top of my head. I find it inconceivable that the Founders thought that the concern when it comes to bribery with respect to a sitting president of the United States was that the president was going to bribe some other person. <laughs> I think they were probably worried about the president being bribed because the president's the chief, you know, the commander-in-chief and the chief you know, officer of, of the country, that this discussion about bribery misses that point a little bit. It, was, it, it should have been, and up until about five minutes ago, was inconceivable that you would have a sitting president of the United States with all the power and all you know, the, the, um, the authority that he would have would ever be in a position to need to bribe another human or officer for anything, right? So that's another reason why it doesn't seem to sort of fit to me. And you know, the, the brilliance of the framers of the Constitution always included enough words that would uh, evolve for future meanings, which is probably why they said bribery, treason, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, whatever they might be. <laughs> whatever that means. Okay. I shared with Barr my frustration with some of the weak, if not outright silly, arguments some Republicans have been making in defense of the president and how it is that they're able to get away with it. I have a very cynical theory. I think they know better, the peop people like Lindsey Graham and people who are lawyers making these arguments. And I think they are taking advantage of the likelihood that people only pay a little bit of attention. People say, you know, I've heard these terms like hearsay and due process and right to confront your accuser. 
They don't have legal training, so they may not know exactly what it means. But people feign outrage that these rights are being denied our president. And it's, you know, it sounds pretty good. If you don't dig deeply and you just sort of nod, yeah, it sounds pretty good. So I think they are taking advantage of the fact that we live in a world of information overload and that they are deliberately misleading the public. So in terms of the best argument, I think if I were a Republican, uh, shudder, I would say, um, <laughs> yes, the president has done something wrong here. Um, it's not okay to invite interference in our election. It was not okay to uh, withhold the military aid. But it's not an impeachable offense. We get to decide what is and isn't impeachable. It's the same way, Preet, when we were um, deciding cases. We would make a decision about, number one, was a crime committed? But that didn't mean charges were automatic. We right. then exercised discretion right. to say, was there a substantial federal interest here in bringing the case? Was it worth the resources? Was it worth all the things that you had to go through? Is it worth it to our country to go through this whole impeachment process? And I think you could, in good conscience, as a Republican, say, um, after weighing all of those things, I think it's not best to go forward with an impeachment for our country, even though these things have happened. Um, but uh, I think it causes people to have to minimize what happened, and I do believe that it was a very serious offense to both invite election interference and to withhold the military aid and to use one as leverage for the other. And so I think it is very much an impeachable offense, which is why they're focusing on process and not on substance. Our discussion ended with some words of wisdom. Final question. Any advice to the average person who, most of whom are here, who care about the public uh, and care about the Constitution, how they should evaluate what they see over the next couple of weeks in connection with the impeachment proceedings? I think facts matter. You know, we, uh, we tend to rely on proxies to help us understand what's going on, and we tend to live in the world of the proxies that uh, best approximate our own worldviews. And so um, I think there's some people who tend to watch one television network or another or get their news on social media or read certain things. And I think that um, to make sure that you're fully understanding what's going on, you need to read and digest from a lot of different sources and then decide for yourself what your opinion is and don't rely on other people to do that for you. You know, our democratic form of government relies on an informed electorate. Sometimes it's harder, despite all these resources we have today, to really get information because of uh, fake news or proxies or shrill yellers out there. Um, but gathering sufficient sources of information and then deciding your opinion for yourself, I think, is critically important. Also on the Detroit stage, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dana Nessel, Michigan's Attorney General. We began with her journey to become the state's top law enforcement official. Let's take a step back and talk about how you got into all of this. So I get this question a lot. Um, so I thought I'd ask you the same question I get a lot. Why, why did you enter the profession of the law in the first place? And by way of um, entree to that question, I have read that you, know, you read a book, and this happened to me also with respect to a different book you read, um, to Kill a Mockingbird, which a lot of people have. When did you realize you wanted to do this kind of work? Well, yeah, I did read that in, uh, in middle school, and it was impactful. Um, did, and you take, did you take the LSAT right then? Right, yeah, in seventh grade. I was like, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Um, yeah, my mom wishes I would have done that. Um, no, I mean, I think I saw pretty early on that the way that you could make the biggest impact in terms of helping people and ensuring that justice was brought to people who it's frequently denied 
um, was to become an attorney and fight for that. And, um, you know, it, a lot of people, I think, um, look back on their legal careers, depending on what kind of work they do, and maybe um, have some regret, depending, you know I, know, I know people who went to work at some of the big silk stocking firms, and, you know, 10 years later, they were totally burnt out from their billables and everything else, but yeah. I will say, I have loved being a lawyer. Um, I've, I've exclusively had jobs that I've really liked, and I've, I feel like it's a job where you can really make a difference. Why do you think the legal profession is so derided? Because <laughs> you seem really nice. I am really and nice, Barb, I know. And I like to think I'm kind of nice, and, but I, I come across this all the time. You know, people don't like lawyers so much. Why? Well, I don't know. I, I guess because most often people come into contact with lawyers at a not very great time in their life. Uh, generally speaking, it's because something bad has happened. It's, I'm not saying you never need a lawyer for anything positive, and, and I will say one of the great joys in my career has been um, you know, being an adoption attorney. Uh, really nothing more wonderful to me than, uh, than seeing a couple be able to adopt, especially because I, I did a lot of cases where there were adoptions out of the foster care system. And so that's really the most magnificent type of work I could imagine. Um, it's great to be a prosecutor and uh, get a conviction, but you know, it, it means that probably something bad has happened to someone at some point, uh, and something bad is going to happen to somebody. So it's, it's not the same kind of joy, for instance. Yeah, but there are also a lot of lawyers who are not happy themselves because they haven't done, this is intentionally for the law students who are here, they go and they try to make the biggest buck that they can. They didn't follow a career in public service like you and I and Barb did. And you know we made less money than a lot of folks, but I think we've had happier lives. So think about that as you decide where you want to go. I think that's very true, though. Since assuming office at the start of this year, Attorney General Nessel has stayed busy, reorienting the investigation to Flint's water crisis and joining lawsuits challenging federal environmental and immigration policies. But Nessel also made headlines because her election marked a first for the state of Michigan. So you're the first openly gay attorney general in Michigan. I think this only the second in the country. And you know, I, I get a I get a related question, kind of different, given you know that I'm the first Asian American person who did this or that. Does that does that matter? And why? Well, yes and no. I mean, I will say, I mean, does it matter in terms of my everyday job performance? I, I don't think so. But I think sometimes when you are uh, a member of a, a minority class, it gives you a different perspective on things because you know what it's like to have been given the short end of the stick. And certainly when it comes to um, being an openly gay person, I mean, you know, I fought very, very hard uh, to ensure that we had marriage equality in our state and, and also nationally. But the thing that was so important to me is our fight was against the office of Michigan Attorney General. So I sat at the other table and yeah. um, those lawyers that tried the marriage equality case against us here in Michigan only the third time in the history of the United States that the issue of marriage equality was ever put to trial they now work for me. 
<laughs> so. I will say, let me say that they are wonderful people. And we get along great, and yeah. they're doing a fantastic now. job. Um, but yes, I am now their boss. What about the other aspect of this? Do you ever feel, it seems like the other way that that can sometimes be important is not just the perspective you bring, but also the inspiration you give to other people who may not have thought, wow, I can do this thing. If Dana Nessel can do it, I can. Have, have you felt any of that impact? Well, I hope it's not the same way that I looked at running for office in the first place, which is basically, well, damn, if Donald Trump can be president, <laughs> I mean, I could be state attorney general, um, which is true. That is what I thought. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope people, you know, can look at, at me and, and lots of people like me that have fought very hard um, for the notion that all people should be entitled to equal protection under the law um, and think to themselves when they see somebody who's being denied equal protection and they see somebody who's being unfairly discriminated against or denied justice, that that's something worth fighting for and it's something you can be successful at if you just work hard enough. Yeah. So, so, you, mentioned, so you mentioned a minute ago, and I, I presume that this is your constituency, so they all know, that you fought really hard uh, as, as an attorney for marriage equality. And it's something that had an, a bearing on, on you because you're someone who suffered from inequality in that regard. I guess my question is to you as a fellow lawyer, when you fight for something that not only has relevance to you know, litigants in a case, but also is, is deeply, deeply important to you personally because you stand to benefit or not based on whether the, the civil rights change is made, does that make you fight harder? Does that make you fight differently? How, do you, how does that work for you as a personal matter? Well, it's funny, when I, um, when I took on the, the marriage equality case, which actually started as an adoption case, um, it didn't feel like it was for me, uh, if for no other reason than I, there was no one that I was planning on marrying, and I had right. no one out there that I assumed would ever adopt my children. Um, but uh, I, I really, um, obviously, these arguments that were being made against our clients as to why they should not be able to jointly adopt their children uh, and both have legal rights and why they should not be able to marry each other. Yeah, those all applied to me as well. So when you had the state, uh, when you had the Department of Attorney General uh, making arguments where they said things like, you know, uh, gay people could never really appreciate the institution of marriage and were uh, bound to ruin it forever for everyone. Um, and that, you know, same-sex couples could never raise children uh, because they would ultimately, uh, you know, their children would not be as successful as children being raised by opposite-sex couples. Yeah, that, that is very disparaging, uh, and it's insulting. And yeah, you probably do fight a little bit harder, but I like to think that I fought hard for all my clients, uh, irrespective of whether I had uh, any commonalities like that with them. Um, and I don't know, I, I've always felt a little bit in my career as though I fought for the underdog, but that's probably not necessarily true. I mean, I've, I've represented the government and people don't see the government as the underdog. Sometimes it is. Sometimes. Sometimes it is.
A.G. Nessel made national headlines when her office dropped criminal charges filed by her predecessor in relation to the 2014 disaster in Flint, when the city's water was contaminated with lead. At the time, President Obama declared Flint's situation a national emergency. Can I ask you a non-legal question on this? Because I I get this query all the time. Are you going to arrest so-and-so? Are you going to send so-and-so to jail because these bad things happened? And that's an important question, and you and I feel those kinds of questions all the time. But a different question, maybe a more fundamental one, when it comes to Flint, is this. How on earth did that happen? And how on earth do we make sure that it doesn't happen again, whether or not anyone gets charged? Right. I think it was just a failure of government on so many different levels, and it's one of the big reasons that I wanted to run for office. I honestly felt as though the Republicans who were running our office, both the governor and uh, the attorney general, who was my predecessor, I I felt as though these were individuals who had no empathy for the people who lived in our state. And especially, you know, a minority, uh, a predominantly minority community like Flint, you know, some uh, 100,000 people, but, you know, mostly um, people of color, uh, people who were of lower economic status, and people that were not, um, you know, not supporters, generally speaking, of uh, the Republicans who were in office. And I just think that they didn't give a damn, to be honest with you. And they would have done anything if they thought that it could save a dime, um, including not taking all the necessary precautions involving uh, their water. So, I mean, that just generally speaking is, is how things seem to have uh, occurred. But I will say this, I I think it just really takes having people in these positions in office who, when you learn that there is a threat or a danger to communities around the state, that your first instinct isn't to cover it up. Uh, Your first instinct is to make sure that people are properly protected. And I will say, we, we have so many big investigations going in our office between Flint, between, uh, you know, MSU and what happened with the Nasser scandal, uh, our clergy abuse scandal. We have numerous um, clergy members that we have charged. And you just see the same theme over and over. And it's this protect the brand, you know, Um, protect the institution instead of protecting people. And... It's, it sounds trite, but it's just putting people first yeah. and not being afraid to, to go out and to say, hey, listen, the government screwed up, but we're going to make this right, um, instead of just covering up, covering up, covering up, no matter, no matter what it is that you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most important thing that we learned from all of that, and that has to be changed, not just here in the state of Michigan, but across the country. That's it for this special live show edition of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, John Hickenlooper, Shannon Watts, Jacob Fry, Barbara McQuaid, and Dana Nessel. And thank you to everyone who came out. Be sure to tune in next week for my conversation with former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. 
or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is David Tattashore, Julia Doyle, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.